Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle, creator of the Teenage Personality Quiz. Head to TalkingToTeens.com for a free PDF explaining how your teenager thinks. We are here today with Erin Claybo talking about her book, Second Nature, How Parents Can Use Neuroscience to Help Kids Develop Empathy, Creativity, and Self-Control. Erin is a professor at the University of Virginia, and she runs an active research program over there. Her scientific research has been published all over the place uh, in the popular press and also in a slew of peer-reviewed journal articles, and she also writes for Psychology Today and websites Mind Body Green and Today Parenting. She is truly an expert in neuroscience and how uh, parents can use their knowledge of neuroscience to develop some of the most important skills in life. Her kids were younger when she wrote the book, and she now has teenagers in her own household. So really interested to hear how things have changed, whether she's got some new tips for us now that she is dealing with some teenagers of her own. Erin, thank you so much for making the time to come on the show today. The book is Second Nature, How Parents Can Use Neuroscience to Help Kids Develop Empathy, Creativity, and Self-Control. This book combines your experiences as a parent with this like really deep knowledge of how the brain works and how the brain kind of develops. And so I'm curious, did you know for a, like forever that you wanted to write this book and just kind of like finally got around to it? Or was it something that kind of... Um, made you from your research or something that made you say, Hey, uh, I got to write this book or what? I think that this book is the product of frustration, honestly, <laughs> um, because I think that I, I never in, intended to set out and write a book. But when I had my first child, I was in graduate school and struggling kind of to do this work-life balance. And in the lab, I was growing neurons in a dish and I was seeing how they connect to each other. And I was like generating mo like animal models of degeneration and trying to figure out how we can make things better with neurons connecting together. And then I'd go home and I would try to do the mom thing. Well, sometimes he would be like in lab with me, like in a little baby backpack, right? Because I'm trying to do this work-life balance. And so I think that they were really separate for me for a couple of years. And I didn't quite make the connection that what I was doing in the lab was so relevant to what I was doing when I was trying to grow a, a human. Um, and so I was looking just like every other parent for resources and reading all the, you know, baby wise and baby whisper and all these kinds of books. 
to do it right because every, every parent wants to do it the best way they possibly can. And I think that I never found the book that I needed, which would have been evidence-based, completely grounded in science, but focused on love and respect. And those two things seem so disparate. Like, how do you get those things to fit together? But in my life, that was my journey as a parent, is how do I get the basic knowledge that I have to fit together with these high ideals of like love and, and peace and how, how do you help someone be successful and happy? There's a picture on page 33 here that it looks like you have taken um, that shows spines growing on a neuron. What the heck is a spine yeah. and why is it important for a parent to know how it works? The reason it's important, we'll start there, is because it shows how dramatically plastic brains are. And what it is, is it um, is is kind of a structural representation of how neurons connect together. So everyone knows we've got neurons and they line up in pathways and make circuits. Um, and a lot of people know things about the synapse, which is like the space in between two neurons and that neurotransmitters connect these two neurons together by passing signals between them in the synapse. But what's really cool about the spine is the spine is actually a protrusion on one side of the receiving neuron that gets the input from the sending neuron. And these spines are really adaptable. And they're, and sometimes they're going to be just growing or shrinking based on the developmental processes that we're going through and it's genetically regulated. But oftentimes it's responding to experiences in the world around us or the experiences that we have as people. And so these spines can become stronger or they can wither away and they get stronger when you use the pathways that the spines are involved in and they'll wither away if you stop using those pathways. And the picture in the book was taken, um, it's from a mouse. So what's really cool about neuroscience is the way that neurons work in kind of lower organisms, they follow the exact same rules as the way that neurons work in humans. So these mouse neurons that I was looking at under the microscope had been taken um, using a model of fetal alcohol syndrome in mice. And so we were looking at the spines on these neurons and seeing how a bad exposure, such as alcohol really early in life, how it could impact how these spines look. And it's interesting that there's a lot of research that shows that good experiences can kind of work in the same way on spines where it can support the spines that you want to see stick around. And so this book became a idea kind of of how you can get the things that you really want to stick around, like empathy and self-control or creativity, how you can use what we know about spines and how neurons get stronger in the pathways that they have to bolster those skills in behavior. So I think it's it's cool just to see this visual in the book and just how fast it happens was something that struck me reading this. Because sometimes as a parent, it feels like, wow, you're just not making any progress. And, you know, you just start repeating the same things over and over and over and over again. And it's cool to see that 
you know, uh, even just on a, on a neurological level that just doing something a couple times, changes are already starting to happen in there. And those new connections are already starting to form. And so, you know, you are making a difference. big thing that um, I try to focus on here is values and how do you teach values you know because what a lot of parents want to do is like try to talk the kid into it I think this is like a big theme that I'm noticing is you know they try to go into like explain mode and logic mode but kind of what you point out and what is you know follows from what we're talking about here I think with the spines is that if you can just get them to start doing it you don't even need to talk them into it if you can just get them to do it over and over again then those pathways start to get strengthened in their brain. And before you know it, they just haven't kind of internalized that value. Yes. And that was something that surprised me, honestly, when I was going through this literature, is that bribing, if done right, actually kind of works. (laughs) Or just more like structured practice that you encourage them to do in whatever way works. And I, I know we've t- been taught that bribing is a terrible way to like foster development of a child. And I do think it can be done really poorly. But if you know a lot about like brain development, um, I think there's a story in the book about a researcher who gave his daughter $1,000 if she didn't try any drugs until she was 21 because he knew exactly what was going to happen on a synaptic level. It's a learning experience when you have um, a, a drug come into your brain. He wanted to delay that as much as possible. There's so much research that shows that the later you take your first drink, the, the less likely you are to become an alcoholic. So things like this where parents actually, if you just think of yourself as placing experiences in the way of your child, the ones that you want them to have to go through or kind of holding experiences away from them that you don't know that they're ready for yet. It kind of puts a different structure to being a parent and to kind of seeing what's important. After I mentioned teencounseling.com on the show last week, I had a number of listeners reach out and tell me they've had a great experience finding a therapist or counselor for their teenager using teencounseling.com. What's really cool about it is that they match your teen with a counselor right on their smartphone. You are in control of choosing which counselor is going to be best for your teenager and you can switch counselors at any time because teencounseling.com is dedicated to making sure there's a really good match. It's more affordable than traditional counseling and financial aid is available. Talking to teens listeners, get 10% off your first month at teencounseling.com slash talking to teens. When I'm in the States, I like to use wild foods mushrooms. They have the highest quality mushrooms available on the market. They even have their own proprietary blend of mushrooms, turmeric and cocoa powder called the cocotropic that is amazing you seriously have to try it to believe it check out all of the literature and get yourself some of their mushrooms at wildfoods.co and they've even given our listeners a 12 percent discount as part of our partnership and you can get that with the code talking wild at wildfoods.co 
talking about bribes. And I wanted to see if we could talk about these two points that you make in here on the next page 191, which is, uh, you know, how to make bribes work. You mentioned these two things, trust matters and the reward matters. So how can we use those two concepts to do bribes in the right way and not the wrong way? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really important question because we all know that you can do them in really poor ways and they can end up backfiring on you. Um, and you end up with a child who's manipulating the system instead of a child who's learning how the system works in a positive way. Um, so I think the, the trust matters is there because I think we have to be extraordinarily consistent as parents. And so if you intermittently reward or don't reward behaviors, or if you value some things at some points better than others, then they'll get reinforcement intermittently from you. Those things are difficult as a child to navigate. So I think it's really important that if you promise something that you deliver, and whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, so that they learn the rules of this small life that we're building for them within our own families, that they're as consistent as possible so that they can make their efforts focused more towards how they can be successful rather on learning the system. Because if you think about it, like if you're playing basketball and the rules were changing all the time, you would never be able to be a really successful basketball player because you wouldn't know exactly what you needed to do to get the points, right? So that's why the consistency is important. And that's important from day one. Like as soon as you have a newborn, trying to be as consistent and nurturing as possible. And the second one, I think, taps into this idea of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. So what is coming from you as a value and what is coming from your child as a value? What do you do if those two things don't match up? And how can you have a conversation where you end up having shared values? Um, so this is where this reward matters. So I would say the best way to do this, particularly in teenagers, is to allow them to identify the trouble areas that need some help and then allow them to decide what they think would work best for them to make those behaviors better mm. and then allow them to choose what their reward is going to be. So you know that they're motivated to get it. They feel like no one's trying to get them to do something they don't want to do. They're coming up with the entire structure. And then your job is just to say, yeah, that's a good idea. Or no, I don't think that's going to work. And let's modify this one thing. It allows them to have total power and total control while you still get what you want. And, and I think for kids that are teenagers, especially having that power means that they're able to do it for the good of just doing it. They feel like they're in control. And for teenagers, you know how they push, pushing, <laughs> trying to get out of this. You're allowing them to push in a way that's good towards something that they want and you want. Okay, so I love that you brought up power because... Power comes up in a number of places throughout the book, and it's like a big, a big thing for me. It's like I think it's one of the three things that I teach with teenagers. The core needs are love, independence, and power that I teach parents about. You gotta understand these three things with teenagers. And so I, I, I learned some stuff in this book about power, and um, 
I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how, okay, you have a couple, um, a couple situations in here where you will kind of specifically like boost power to make kids feel more powerful in certain situations. And then I also noticed that you had certain situations where you actually kind of like reduced their power or like gave power to the other kid, um, kind of on purpose. So could you talk a little bit about when and why you might do that kind of a thing with teenagers? Yeah, and I think the reducing someone's power in in some ways works better when you have multiple kids because you can be in charge of the balance um, more. But I would say if we're taking the example of an oldest child, the oldest child probably is going to be normally the one that needs the power the most because they're most used to having it. They have younger siblings and they kind of have had a little bit more of an adult role for some of their life. So when I think about power, I think about making it so that somebody feels that whatever behavior they're doing, they're giving it instead of having somebody taking it from them. And this is really important when it comes to empathy and kindness, because you can't make somebody be those things. You just have to set the stage so that they feel like they're full enough and have gotten enough themselves that they ha- they can afford to give to somebody else. They can afford to be compassionate and to be kind, and that that space is there for them to be able to feel the benefits of it. But if you point at a kid and say, you know, share this now, give your sister a ride to school, I gave you this car, or whatever it is, you're going to get pushback, right? So this idea of power, you know, it's your decision if you take your sister to school or not in the car that, you know, I bought you. But if you don't, you need to see the impact she's going to have to take the bus and people are going to make fun of her or or whatever, you know, the situation is. This idea about giving them boosts whenever possible makes it so that when there's no power for them or they're in bad situations, they don't push back as hard because they have a reserve to pull from, a reserve that they know that they've been independent, that they are competent to do things, they can make their own decisions. That's this whole like p- power where you, where you want someone to feel empowered knowing that there's going to be tons of situations in their life where they're going to walk into the cafeteria and there's going to be no one to sit with. They're going to be in a powerless position where they're in a disciplinary situation at school with a administrator who doesn't understand that is a powerless position. But these things are small too. They're, they're these little moments of sitting in the driveway when your sister's late and you're annoyed and you're honking the horn. Do you wait for her? Do you have empathy for her? You have power to make that decision. The repercussions are going to be just personal they're not going to be the mom coming in and taking the car away. And what I've noticed with my kids is when we do this and they're in that situation, they almost always do the kind, right thing. And when they don't do it and they have to see the fallout from it, they learn. They they don't do that again. It's, it's interesting. You'd think that they would do the rude thing. They take the biggest cookie every single time. But they don't always do that because it feels good to give. But the first couple times, that is rough as parents because you have to see them make the wrong choice and that all the fallout that happens from it. But you just have to keep letting them have the choice and scaffolding what happened and what they could have done differently. And what do you think would have happened if you had waited? Or what if, you know, you hadn't honked the horn 18 times and woke up the neighbor, right? There's so many implications, and this is where the creativity kind of comes into it, too, is you got to be able to talk through. they got to be able to sit in the driveway and think through all the options. What's going to happen if I do this? What's going to happen if I do that? And that's self-regulation, right? 
Yeah, and once you can get them doing it, then they start building those spines. And if you can get them to be doing it on their own, um, then... Then your job's done! <laughs> <laughs> One other thing about power that I thought was so interesting was a study that you talk about in this book um, that had to do with monkeys and it was it involved social power and it involved studies uh, it involved monkeys that were lower on the social ladder were more likely to become addicted to cocaine than monkeys who were socially on top. Why is that the case and what does that teach us about power in our, our own, you know, kids and teenagers? I know. This was such a cool study. So they basically are measuring dopamine levels. What they're saying is that being socially on top is rewarding and that we as humans have a drive to do things that are rewarding. Being socially on top is also rewarding. We get a dopamine rush from it. Cocaine. Dopamine rush. That's what the tra the neurotransmitters that it works on. It will release dopamine and or it'll basically mimic a release of dopamine. So that taps into reward pathways and it also is highly addictive. And so this study showed that basically if you give monkeys free access to cocaine, that the ones that are socially more dominated by others, so therefore they don't have a dopamine boost from being socially on top, will find that dopamine boost elsewhere. So they will be more likely to administer cocaine to themselves than the ones who are in charge. And so for me, this was really important. It, it basically said, your children are going to find a dopamine rush somewhere. It's important. We're designed to identify with this, to want it. It feels good. And it's kind of our job as parents to make sure that they get it in ways that are healthy, right? So if creativity in some ways can give dopamine rushes, we need to be able to make space for them to do that. If empathy can, can do that, it's, there's so many studies that show how rewarding it feels to be compassionate and to be the person who is the bigger person. Those things feel good. So if we can tap into those kinds of things, especially in a situation like high school, where there's only going to be a couple people at the top of that social ladder, that is power. And the monkeys or teenagers or humans that don't have that social power, they're going to have a need there. That need is for love, obviously, but that need is also for the reward, that dopamine rush that you get when you are competent at what you do, when people look up to you, when you have power over other people. We're here with Erin Claybo talking about how parents can use neuroscience to help kids develop empathy and self-control. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. I've done a lot of work trying to figure out what's the best way to teach. And again and again, experiential learning is the best way to get people to learn, own, and then apply that material. So you don't want them to always win because then they don't get to practice being the underdog. And then as soon as they started to read, they're reading these signs out loud and they're just awful to listen to them saying, what does, and then they're spelling out like the word homelessness mean, mommy, right? So then 
they want to give him money. They want to help him. And, you know, I immediately jumped to, oh, but you don't know what they're going to do with the money and my like way of like controlling behavior for someone else. I don't even know. So they have identified this problem. It's bothering them. Like I can see them as we don't do anything and we go past it for several miles afterwards. Like they're bothered. And so I let her try to figure it out. And and she was like, well, we could give money. And then we kind of talked through that. And then she was like, I could give them cards. So she drew this really cute card. And then we just put granola bars and applesauce and water and these cards into brown paper bags and just kept them in the back of the car. I don't know how they were received by the people who got them, but the card was super sweet. And her look on her face, like after she'd sit back in her seat, after she did that, like, those next couple miles, she's just like beaming. So I've realized I never was taught conflict resolution. So when I was trying to help my kids navigate playground dynamics, I didn't even know where to start. So I found like, even as a parent, this has made my conflict resolution with my kids so much better. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable. And your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.